Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is so good to be able to be with you here today as we uh, continue on in our James series. And what I want to do, um, as we often do here, is we take a couple moments to recap where we've been. And so if you are brand new with us, welcome. We are so glad uh, that you're with us here this morning, that you chose to, to spend some time with us today and, and hopefully get connected and plugged in with other people here, but also hopefully to, to have God do a thing in your life, to move in a powerful way, uh, to encourage, to challenge, whatever it may be. Now, if you've been with us for a while, what we do is we typically repeat the main points and talk through uh, what that looks like. But what we're trying to do for this series is just try something a little different. So if you have your, your notes inside the bulletin, if you were to turn on the other side, you will see the main points uh, from the previous two weeks in the series. If you want to get caught up on those sermons, you can go to pomerado.com slash messages, um, or you can go to Apple iTunes, or you could go to Google Play. But instead of going through them, I'm going to explain it again for the next couple times, but then shortly I won't take the time to explain it, because then I may as well just be doing the main points again. But just so you know, uh, you can always catch up, um, and we could be able to make sure we're all on the same page, but I want to be cognizant of the time and cognizant of our, uh, the opportunity we have here together. So with that said, we are going to dive into James chapter 2 in just a moment. If you will join me in a word of prayer, then we will um, see what the Lord has for each of us. Father, we thank you so much that you are here in this place, and I thank you for the ways we've already been able to worship you through, through singing, through reading of your word, uh, through being able to see kids up here, to be able to um, have them leading us in song, to be able to hear, um, have a time of communion and to hear what you're doing through our students and our church across the world in Ecuador, um, and recognizing, God, that you have great plans for us here uh, and reaching the San Diego County, especially with VBS coming up, and there's a lot of great things, Lord, and we would be remiss if we just didn't take a moment to thank you for who you are, for your love for us, and for the opportunity to share that love with those around us. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, you would increase, you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord. Um, thank you that each and every person here has been formed by you and loved by you, and that each one is here for a reason today. May we have the eyes, ears, and hearts to understand the reason you have for us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what we're going to do as we start off is something a little bit different, and um, I imagine that uh, we're going to be in James chapter 2, we're going to be on page 1880, 1880 in the church Bible. If you brought your own Bibles or use the, uh, your phone as a Bible, that's great too. James chapter 2, 1 through 13, and as you're doing that, we're talking about why favoritism is forbidden, we want to uh, kind of do a little bit of an illustration that I'm, I'm sure all of us here have some sort of favorite type of music. Right, it's a type of genre that we like. In fact, there's probably some that maybe the first thing you think about is what your favorite is, and then maybe the exact next thing is like your least favorite, like you can already divide between the two. But what we want to do is I'm going to take um, a couple moments here. We're going to play a few snippets of songs, just the very beginning of songs. And if you feel like you know, can categorize, can tell which genre it is, just go ahead and just go ahead and uh, to shout it out or just to say what it is. If you know the band and everything, that's great too. But we're thinking about what genre of music each of these are. And so, can you categorize these songs and tell me what genre they represent? Can we go to number one, please? Classical, right? And also, just so you know, this will be the background for the rest of my sermon. What's really dramatic. I'm just, I'm just kidding. All right, classical. Classical or romantic uh, timeline, uh, which is through Beethoven. Let's go to number two. Let's hear it loud, let's loud. Pop, I hear disco, pop. 
This is uh, Michael Jackson, known as the King of Pop. So this is Thriller. Uh, you guys probably recognize this from between the time of October 1st and October 31st. You hear it all of the time, everywhere, forever. Um, so okay, so we have pop a little bit. Let's go to uh, number three. What is it? Classic rock. Who is this? The Beatles. Okay. I didn't actually not know, just for the record. I was just saying. Uh, so you guys said classic rock. Actually, the right answer for this is just good music. That's just the answer. Is that just good? Um, then let's do number four. Let's see if we can get this one. Do you, all the parents with young kids are like, it's Disney, right? Like they know right away. Let's see, let's just hear the first. It's frozen, right? There you go, there you go. Frozen juice coming out. I don't get paid to say that. I'm just mentioning a comment in November. Uh, so let's go ahead and turn that down. Um, many of you said Disney. Actually, the right answer for that is is good music, but slightly overplayed. That's the actual right definition because uh, you can pretty much find many genres of music there. You think Disney? It's good music, slightly overplayed. With that said. Um, we can, we can naturally categorize within the first few notes, whether it's going to be classic rock, whether it's going to be pop, whether it's going to be country, or I mean, any of these different types of genres of music. And it's something that just comes so naturally because we recognize the type of sound that each genre will so often uh, embody. Now, what we're going to do is obviously, we may have a favorite type of music, and, and I almost went down a rabbit hole of trying to find like 10 different genres, and it would have been really fun for me, but also would have taken a lot of time, and we wouldn't have been able to dive in together. So with that said, it's we take a few of these and maybe say, oh, that's my favorite kind of music, or oh, you know, I prefer something else, and, and that's totally fine. But where it's not fine, where favoritism is not good, is when it comes to how we are with other people how we are to show favorites to one another. Now, there's a, um, a study, a book called uh, Social Categorization and Stereotyping by Dr. Rajiv Jandiani and Dr. Hammond Terry. And what they talk about briefly is they kind of have this idea that we naturally categorize people socially and, and we automatically do it. Even if there's no intention of doing it uh, with malicious intent, we just naturally start to categorize people in different areas. So this person may have more money than this person. This person may have an accent, means they come from a different place. This person may be able to just look differently or act differently or think differently or vote differently or whatever it may be. And we so often will just categorize people into different categories. And that might be easy for us, and it might be something that's unintentional, but what can happen if we're not careful is that if we use those categories, and then we stop caring about the actual person, but then we say, well, everyone in this category, they're all just like that. They all have these negative characteristics. They all are this certain way. And then we go from kind of categorizing people, which is unintentional, to stereotyping people, which is not good, to being prejudiced against people, which is wrong. And so if we're not aware or cognizant of the fact that we can categorize, even when it's unintentional, we need to peel back a little bit and recognize that when it comes to God's house, when it comes to the body of Christ, when it comes to the church, that God does not want us to play favorites with one another. 
That favoritism could be as simple as when you see a box of pizza and you want the biggest slice for yourself because you, you want to think about your own needs. It could be something where you say you don't want to accept an invitation to someone else's house because what if somebody else might invite you? It might be something where you have an opportunity, someone asks you to hang out and, and grab coffee and you say, well, I don't really want to because you know, I'd rather spend time with someone else. And it becomes this thing in which we start to categorize people and think who are the quote best people for us to be around? Who are the ones that we may not want to spend time with? And again, if we're not careful, categorization can become stereotyping. Stereotyping can become prejudice. And if we go down that road, then it's breaking the heart of God. If we go down that road as a church, we are missing the point. And so as we look at why favoritism is forbidden, our main point is what we see on the screens, if you follow along your notes, is that if God were more like us, stereotyping, categorizing, prejudice, if God were more like us, we would be on the wrong side of his judgment. And if we were more like God, others would be on the right side of his mercy. That if God had the same narrow mindset that we have, and I, by we, I just mean people in general, and we started to categorize like, okay, well, these people, they're in this category. They're too far gone. God will never reach them. So why should we even try? The category becomes stereotyping, becomes prejudice, becomes we don't actually care about people in, as individuals as much anymore because we just box them in and then we keep them out. And so if God were more like us, we'd be on the wrong side of his judgment. If we were more like God, we'd, others would be on the right side of his mercy. As we're looking at James chapter 2, 1 through 13, as we dive into the passage here together, the first part of your notes, the header there, is this idea of the tragedy of favoritism. The tragedy of favoritism. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll write down our point together. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the tragedy of favoritism is this in your notes, that there are plenty of places where people are evaluated on face value. The church shouldn't be one of them. There are plenty of places where people are evaluated on face value. The church shouldn't be one of them. That James is writing this to a general, it's the general epistle. It's not like Paul writing to the Romans or Paul writing to the, the church of Corinth or Galatia, any of those. This is one that is a general epistle that is going out to uh, believers who um, are spread out. The diaspora, if you remember the first week, we talked about how it was people that were dispersed and so he's giving this example because perhaps already, this is one of the earliest books written between the, the years 40 and 50, um, right after Jesus died. Already there seems to have been evidence that there is a favoritism that would divide, that people within the church would start to look at some people as better, as more likely to want to spend time with, that I'll accept their invitation to their house, and I won't accept their invitation, or I won't even invite them. I mean, there's already this dilemma of being able to have this favoritism that's developing. Now, this word favoritism in some of your versions of the Bible, in verse 1, it'll say partiality. Um, in fact, in Deuteronomy 10, it says partiality as well. And here's what this idea comes up with is that partiality or favoritism is the idea of lifting someone's face or elevating someone 
So it's this idea of like, if there's two people like, oh, I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to lift up your face as opposed to turning my face away from someone else. So as John MacArthur in his study Bible talks about is that then this became exalting someone based on face value. For example, based on their appearance, their race, their wealth, their rank, or social status. That there are plenty of places in which people are evaluated based on face value. The church should not be one of them. And so the tragedy is, is that when we miss that point, we're missing the heart of God. That in verse 3, it even talks about if you were to say, here, I have a nice place for someone who has a nice ring and nice clothes. Why don't you come sit in the front? Except no one sits in the front at our church. It's the spray zone. Be careful. But it's one of those where it's just, you know, let's have you come up front. And then we have someone we say, no, you can sit in the back. In the verbiage, in the Greek here, when James is saying this, he's saying, suppose one, that someone comes in and you say, oh, no, here, please, I have a seat for you to the rich person. And it's more of a, of a like, no, 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 I insist, please. Like there's an imperative, but the idea is not demeaning. The idea is, no, I, I insist, no, really, I want you to sit front and center. Whereas when the verbiage for the, the Greek comes to the, the person who's poor, it says, you sit over here or you sit at my feet. It's a command that has no heart behind it. It's an imperative that is not an I insist, but I command, I tell you because you're less than me. And it implies this, that it puts, separates people between who are higher than us and less than us. And if we fall into this hierarchical thinking that is so common in the world, again, we are missing the point and we are missing the heart of God. And see, verse 3, when it talks about a poor servant who comes in or a poor one who comes in, and it says, you stand here or there or sit on the floor by my feet. One of the, um, one of the commentaries hit on this idea that people who are poorer, and again, this is not a church building. This is a house, right? Like these are, this, they didn't have big buildings back then. This was just a few years after Jesus died. These are house churches. And so if you put them in the seat of honor, and then you tell a servant to sit at your feet, some of these people who are poor, some of these people who are servants, what was it that they were doing all day? They were washing people's feet. They were spending their whole day trying to wash the feet of those who are supposedly better than them, sociologically speaking, or in the rank or status. And then they go to church and they feel like, if I'm around brothers and sisters who know the Lord, this is where I can just be valued as a person. This is where I can now experience identity in who Jesus is, not in what the world thinks of me. And then the tragedy of recognizing that in that moment when they said, no, you sit at my feet, the church becomes just as harsh as the world. There are plenty of places where people are evaluated based on their face value. The church shouldn't be one of them. So we look here. Luke 14, we're not going to turn there, but in Luke 14, Jesus gives this example that he talks about if you were going to invite someone to your party, if you're going to invite someone to your house, if you invite people that are only rich, that only have good means, you're going to get repaid by being invited back to their house. But if you invite the poor or the ones who cannot repay you, your repayment will come in the kingdom of God. And so this idea of recognizing that we shouldn't be looking at each other at just these social hierarchical terms, that this person's better, this person's richer, this person has more, this person is more influential, this person is whatever it may be, but that the church would be a place where all persons 
Every individual that has been formed and created by God and with whom God has breathed his breath in, his life into at the moment of birth would be able to find that Jesus loves them. Regardless of the way the world might try to evaluate on face value, they would try to find their true value in the face of Jesus. Now, the next point here that when it comes to tragedy favoritism is this idea that we tend, we kind of hit on this a little earlier, we tend to categorize people unintentionally. But God can intentionally flip those categories. <clears throat> we tend to categorize people unintentionally, but God intentionally flips those categories. As you're writing down your notes, I was listening to uh, Sports Talk Radio earlier this week, and I was listening to the host talk about how he owns a partial owner at a um, wine store, a large wine store in Connecticut. And so he was sharing about how every couple hours a week he would want to go and be a part of the, on the sales floor and, and talk to people. And... He talked about how he had a theory when it came to having, uh, making the best sale as a salesman. His theory was that if you look at someone and if someone walks in, they're rich or they're wealthy or they're put together or they're young or whatever it may be, he's like, my theory is you ignore them because people have always been paying attention to them. What you do is you go, and these are his words, not mine. Uh, you look at someone who's you know, not as put together or you know, doesn't have nice clothes, doesn't look very good, and then you go and you pursue them because if you spend 15 minutes with them, they'll be more likely instead of buying one bottle of wine to buying four. And he doesn't have a faith, you know, he doesn't have a faith background, but this is the way the world thinks. They categorize people and then we start to treat people based on those categories. That he categorized and then that meant that he made a stereotype, and then it meant that he was prejudiced against certain people. And that's a silly, small example, but there are very real-life examples that happen every single day based on people's race, based on people's um, financial status, based on where people are from, based on their acts. I mean, whatever it is, all of the time, we can look at a wine store example and feel like that's not real life, but we can look across our street and see that it is real life. That... We may unintentionally do it, but God can intentionally take those categories and flip them to be different than what we expect. So here's the thing. We're going to have one more song that we, ha <clears throat> excuse me, that we have uh, for you to play. And again, I want you to, to shout out in the first 15 seconds or so, shout out what genre you think that it is. And for some of you, you may know it already. If you know this already, uh, don't, don't shout out who the, the, the singer is or the, the actual song, but just listen to the, how it sounds and tell me what genre you think it is. Can we play that one, please? Okay, so we got country, yeah, yeah? Let's listen to the voice, the voice we all heard. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna What do you think? Just listen to the song. What, what genre is this? No country. For the, we say country, right? That's Billy Ray Cyrus. He still makes music. Who knew? Um, and so that is Billy Ray Cyrus. And yet, that's the first little bit, and that's what you think it is. Can we, can we start and play the last little clip that we had together? We'll keep the song going. I got the horses in the back. Is that what you expected? Did you expect hip hop and rap to happen? See, some of you knew the song. This song is called Old Town Road. This is actually the number one song in our country for like two months now. And I had to look up what's that song that has the music? You know, like I didn't know what it's called. Um, but it's one of those where the, the, the point is. There's an expectation that gets set up. You think that I know this is country. 
And then for those of you who didn't already know it, you're like, oh, this is country. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this flips what I thought it was going to be. And with that in mind, we recognize that there are times when we tend to categorize people unintentionally, but God intentionally flips those categories. Let's read verses five through eight together. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? We'll actually stop here at verse 7. That Matthew Henry says this, that this idea of this respect of persons, or in other words, not respecting people properly, but the way of having this mindset that we separate people, rich, poor, judge them on that, is a heinous sin because it is to show ourselves most directly contrary to God. That we are either seeing the world, we talked about this last week, right? We are either looking at the world through the mirror of the world, or we are looking at our lives through the mirror of the word. And this is another example. We could look at people around us and categorize them based on the mirror of the world or upon the mirror of the word. And so we see that he flips this idea, shows us that, and yet he hits on something that we wonder ever since we were in elementary school and junior high school or, or middle school, when we start to hear, why is it? That in order for people to feel better about themselves, they feel the need to push others down. Why is it that in order to make ourselves feel elevated, we, and we turn our faces away, we show favoritism in a negative way against other people? That for many of us, the way that we don't want to be seen as the negative or as the less than, the way that we say, oh, the best way for me to distance myself is to tear them down. And hope that those that I want to be more like will see, oh, look how different they are from them. They're not like them. In fact, they're more like us. You know, I'm going to invite them in. We're going to have them to the finest parties. We're going to go to the finest restaurants. I mean, whatever it is. But what we see is that God does not live the way that the world tells us to live. He does not tell us to live according to the way the world wants us to live. That instead, he says, like, it's the poor who are poor in spirit that are blessed. That those of you who are rich, that you get your reward here in on earth, that we recognize that it's not about our value here based on the world's definitions, but on who Jesus is. And so the best way that we make sure that we aren't like the lowly is to make them feel lower while making ourselves feel better. We categorize, we stereotype, we become prejudiced, and then we never share the gospel because we think that those people, whatever that is that we categorize them, we think that those people are people that are too far gone. It's not worth it. They're different, and therefore, they must not be loved. When God shows us that nothing can be further than the truth. We look at the idea of the tragedy about favoritism. We're going to go quickly to this next part called the truth about judgment. Verses 8 through 10, the truth about judgment. If you really keep, verse 8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin Oh, sorry, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. That underneath our notes, the truth about judgment is that if failing to love our neighbor, as we look directly here in verse 8 and 9, Failing to love our neighbor means failing to keep the law. That when Jesus talked about what the two greatest commandments are, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're looking from a Jewish background, Deuteronomy 10 says this, verses 16 through 18. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or favoritism and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That this was from Deuteronomy, the, one of the five books of the law in the Torah. It's, this is the law to say, don't be stiff-necked. Don't have this outer shell on your heart. Circumcise your heart so that you can see how much God loves everyone. He doesn't play favorites. He wants all of us to experience a right relationship with him. So failing to love our neighbor means failing to keep the law. Now, your next point is there, is that by failing to keep just one part of the law means that we are deserving of judgment. It says, if you break one part of the law, you have become a lawbreaker. You are, verse 9, if you show favoritism, your sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. T.D. Lee, who does, uh, he's a commentator, writes this. Verse 10 shows why those who saw sorry, who practice partiality are lawbreakers. Some Jews saw God's law as containing many detached requirements forbidding such actions as murder or adultery and robbery. They failed to see the unity between them all. They may have felt that strict obedience at one point would compensate for disobedience elsewhere. But God's law is not like a set of 10 bowling pins, which we knock down one at a time. It more resembles a pane of glass in which a break at one point means that the entire pain is broken. And so James uses a, a sin, a favoritism, that seems inconsequential or smaller than maybe these other sins. Well, I'm not murdering someone. But remember what we talked about last week, that if you are, have anger within your heart, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that's murder. Well, I'm not committing adultery, but then again, it uses the example both in James 2 and James 1 last week. But if you have lust for someone in your heart, you're committing adultery. And so if you have just in the internal, if your thoughts are leading you to the point where that is sin, then we are underestimating our own badness, we are overestimating our own goodness, and we need to have our eyes open to the truth of the gospel. The truth about judgment, that if we, if God was like us and how we treat other people, then all of us would be on the wrong side of his judgment because you're a lawbreaker. You've done one thing wrong. Therefore, it doesn't matter how many of the others kept, one law broken means you're a lawbreaker. And so instead of saying, well, at least I'm doing one thing right, I'm not doing the other, he says, there's a unity amongst them all. That one paint uh, crack is enough to make the whole window pane broken. And so we look here. We've looked at the idea of the tragedy of favoritism, the truth about judgment, and the last one as we close is the triumph of mercy. The triumph of mercy. Verses 12 through 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Not that's a burden, not that's oppressive, a law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Do you hear the Beatitudes when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. And then the last four words of this section, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in our notes, since God's mercy has won us over, that if you are in this place and you've given your life to the Lord, you are trusting in his mercy and recognize that though we are worth, or rather, though we are deserving of judgment, 
That because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have no more stains. We are no longer looked upon as a sinner, but we are able to have a right relationship with God, that we are now co-heirs with Christ, that we are now able to have a right relationship, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, and now we can build upon the foundation he's built for us. And so because he's won us over, we are called to share that triumph, that victory, that winning over with others through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Last, year, last week, we looked at wanting to, to love people with our words and our charity and our purity. This is a very similar idea that through our thoughts, our words, our actions, that we want to show God's love to people around us. And the triumph of mercy is the truth that we recognize that we were never, we are deserving of judgment. We're not deserving of the mercy God gives us. And we're surely not deserving of the grace that goes over and above. And so we close with this idea that DJ Moo says it this way. The believer in himself will always deserve God's judgment. Conformity to the royal law is never perfect as it must be. But our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on this basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. That's a fancy way, a long way of saying that mercy triumphs over judgment. That if we have lived our lives out of the merciful, with the same merciful nature that Jesus has shown us, that God has shown us that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die for us, that we were once enemies of God, but God sent Jesus to bridge that gap, that though we are deserving of judgment, we're receiving of mercy. Now we can be dispensers of mercy. We can be givers of mercy. We can find our freedom not in putting ourselves up by elevating ourselves with our face value, by turning our faces away from those less than us or perceived less than us by the world, but instead we're able to recognize that it's not about our face value according to the world. It's, about, it's a fact that through the word we can find our value through the face of Jesus. And if we miss this point, then we're missing so much of the life that God has for us. T.D. Lee, it's not on the notes or it's not on the screen, but he says that faith in Jesus Christ provides freedom. Remember, this is a law of freedom. He provides freedom to escape hatred and self-love and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's for freedom that we have been set free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That this law that we follow is meant to show the freedom we have in Christ. And it's meant for us to experience the mercy and to recognize that if God has triumphed in my life, who I at one point may have been categorized by other people as someone who's too far gone, that there's no hope, so why share? And if we stop looking at categories and stereotypes and prejudices, and we start looking at individuals and recognizing that there is no person you've ever locked eyes on that God did not create, that Jesus did not die for, and that the Holy Spirit does not want to draw unto the Father. And if we recognize that, then we don't try to put other people down. We don't try to separate ourselves and make ourselves feel good. We are able to be free to dispense the mercy that we've already received from God. And that's when... The power of the gospel changes places and changes people, changes lives, changes generations. And it all stems from us not showing favorites to people based on their face value, because the church shouldn't be a place where people are evaluated on their church, or sorry, on their face value. So what does this look like for you? Maybe it means that you've recognized, and I don't want you to write this down because like 
at least not here, and you're like, who are the people that you felt you looked down upon? You're like, well, JP, number one, after today, and then, uh, you know, like, that, that's not the point. But the idea of just recognizing, asking God, from the end of Psalm 139, 23 and 24, God, search me and know me, God. See if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. That maybe there's a way in which we are categorizing people and then we are starting to stereotype people and then we're starting to be prejudiced against people and then we're, we are deciding whether someone is worth the gospel and that is unequivocally wrong. It's a heinous sin in the words of Matthew Henry and it's something where if we as a church, I'm again, I'm not talking about just us here. I'm talking about us as the church, the capital C church that we here at Pomerano Christian Church get to join our voice and the chorus of churches across this world, billions of people who are praising God on this day. We, as we join our voice, may our voice be one that does not talk about judgment, that does not put people in boxes, that does not lead into categories and, and then the stereotypes and the prejudices. May we be a voice that shows the four simple words that we need to all hear today, that mercy triumphs over judgment. To close, we see uh, T.D. Lee again in his commentary talks about the power that the church had the, the, the impact the church had on the world around them. Here's what he says. They, the church, they fed the needy, accepted outcasts, buried the poor, cared for orphans and the aged, encouraged prisoners and victims of disasters, and showered compassion on the persecuted. Their lives proved that Christianity produced a superior character. This is still the best proof of the reality of our faith. May God enable us today to make a bold demonstration of our mercy to others. If you want to know how to reach people who are far from God, be a dispenser of mercy. If you want to be someone who is pointing people to the truth of the gospel, maybe we confess our times of the tragedy of favoritism. We confess and recognize and behold the truth of the truth about judgment, that we would be the ones within the crosshairs if God didn't show his love for us through Jesus Christ, and that we now can be ones who, as recipients, can freely give because we have a source of living water that never runs out. So we could dispense mercy and love and grace and speak the truth in love. I'm not saying forsake truth. But again, we may not truth people into the gospel. We may not anger people into the gospel. We can love people into the gospel and mercy people into the gospel. And in so doing, we show them love and then we teach them truth. We don't push them away with truth and say, no, really, we love you from afar. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That for us today, as we close, it's just the reminder of our main point that if God were more like us, we would be on the wrong side of his judgment. But if we were more like God, others would be on the right side of his mercy. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord, and I pray, God, that as we, as we wrestle with this text, as we wrestle with the depravity of our own hearts, the, the nature that unintentionally we categorize and stereotype, Lord, I pray that when those categories or stereotypes rise up, that we would immediately see the value that each and every person has in you, that each and every person is someone who is formed by you, Lord, that they've been created by you, that, that Jesus died so that all people would be able to have an opportunity to come into right relationship with you, Father, through his sacrifice and through relationship with him. 
And that Holy Spirit, you want to beckon people unto you. May we have the opportunity to to show Jesus to others so that you can show and bring people to the foot of the cross. So Lord, convict us, encourage us, challenge us, whatever you need to do within us. But may we be people who are dispensers of the mercy that we've already received because like you said, Jesus, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And just as James said, we believe and we verbalize and may we live out the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.